welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I have my co-host and who I consider the main host, Catherine, because we're trying Hello, to get everyone. We're trying to get insights from Catherine uh, because she witnessed things, she experienced things um, that really have never been told. Um, and you know the story from a previous episode of how we found our kids and adopted them, but there's more to the story. Because what brought us down to Haiti in the first place that led us to our children? And that was the story of this little boy. Two years old, Gardy Marty, U.S. citizen, born in the United States to Haitian parents. And then they moved back to Haiti, where his father was the ecclesiastical leader of his church. And this little boy was kidnapped. Now, Catherine, tell me, you, you remember how impassioned we both were when we learned about this little boy and we wanted to help him. Uh, his story appeared in, 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 in a couple of news stories and because he was a U.S. citizen, we thought we could get him. Yeah. What, 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 how, what do you recollect from, from that time? Well, I remember at the time, I remember the devastation of that earthquake. When was that? Back in? That was in uh, January 10th of 2010. It was just after Christmas and just this devastating earthquake. And of course, at that time, we didn't know anything about a lot of things that were coming in our, in our future, but we didn't know, we didn't know about that. And we didn't know about this boy, but I remembered the, the pain of, of that earthquake and what the deaths. I think it was a quarter million deaths immediately. And what was underreported, I remember was, if there's a quarter million deaths, that means there's a lot of kids. Yeah. And I, th I think tens of thousands of orphans were just made overnight. It was just devastating. It was so awful. So then fast forward a couple years and you find out about this father who is on this solo search for his son. And I'm, I'm going to let you tell that story, but what really... I was I was so moved by his his just unending dedication to the search for his son. Especially when you look at like Haiti and all the problems and all the stuff that he was dealing with currently, not even not even talking about the kidnapping, but just so much. He his his just love and dedication to finding his son. Yeah. I remember seeing a picture in the paper of him like digging through rubble to pull his family out because he was actually outside his office in Port-au-Prince, the two-story building, and he watched it collapse on his family, killing, I want to say, his sister, brother-in-law, friends, his own mother. And this was just weeks after the kidnapping. And that was the devastating part. <sighs> he was, he had lost his two-year-old son who, who, who's his best friend. Not not just lost, like to earthquake, which is horrible, which is, that's horrible. But his son was taken. Taken. And, and in the hands of unknown and just, oh. And he often told me, he said, I, I would have rather just, he died. Because then I have faith that I know where he is. But to not know where he is, to not know who had him. I mean, to. to what he was going through, what he was experiencing. That's just like, oh. 
to, to lose your two-year-old and then weeks later lose half your family while looking for your son. And that's what just overwhelmed me with compassion. And I thought, we've got to help this guy. I mean, this, this little boy's a U.S. citizen. And that was my hope that, that I would get permission from the U.S. government to go look for him uh, because he's a U.S. citizen. You got a little bit of You got like some minimal. Like, I, I opened a case. Yeah. But ultimately, I was told that this is, even though he's a U.S. citizen, it's a, it's, a, it's a Haitian case, Haitian crime. Well, hadn't the FBI done something initially? Yeah, yeah they, according to guests, no, the FBI did send some people down for a couple of weeks. But, I mean, the odds. An earthquake. And, yeah, I mean, it's just the whole country is a mess. How are you going to find? It's like finding a needle in a haystack. And so I was so compelled to do something. And I really thought I could do it as a U.S. agent somehow. Um, I actually had to like borrow money from somebody to fly him up to the United States where I can meet with him. And it was just a tear fest uh, because I wanted to hear the story. Like, what, what do you have? What evidence do you have? And I remember him answering my question with a question that's just horrifying. He said, instead of telling me exactly what was being done to find his kid, he said to me, do you have children? And I said, yes. And then he said, could you sleep at night knowing that one of your children's beds was empty? <laughs> and I remember just thinking, wow, like, no, no way. He says, well, since I don't sleep, what I do is because he couldn't afford a private, I mean, he, he called some private investigative groups and I think it was like half a million dollars just to start. So he's on his own. And he told me that because he can't sleep, knowing that one of his children's beds empty, that he has to walk the streets of Port-au-Prince every night, flashlight in hand, arbitrarily picking some neighborhood and just praying to God that he would, as he told me, hear my son cry. And then I would go find him. And I'm just, I'm just sobbing. I'm just like, that's it? That's the plan? Do you have any evidence? Do you have any intelligence? Well, and go, go back. Um, tell the story of the abduction, the, the circumstances that led to it. So what, what had happened was this, this man was already, him and his wife had started an, an orphanage. And I think at the time, there's over 100 kids are taken care of. And one of the employees named Carlos was he caught him embezzling money, so he fired him. Um, this man is also the ecclesiastical leader of his of his local congregation. The father. The father, guess known. He, um, and this guy Carlos was in that congregation, so he said, you're fired, but you're still welcome to come to church. Well, Carlos is pretty upset, and he wants revenge. So, um, so Gesno said that that particular Sunday, he was, Gardy was kidnapped on a Sunday, and in December of 2009, he said that Gardy just would not let him go. It's, it's almost, he said, it's like, it's like Gardy knew something was going to happen. He didn't want to go to his Sunday school class. He just hung to his father. I mean, he's literally directing the, the, you know, the, 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 the meeting while holding his son. Cause he wouldn't let go of him. But eventually he, he forced, and he just through tears told me the story. He forced him off him and said, I've got to go do some stuff. Go find mom. 
down in the congregation. This was after the, the adult service, the main service. And he released him. And that's the last time you saw him. Because Carlos was waiting in the wings. And somewhere between Gardy, his two-year-old boy walking from his father on the stand to his mother in the congregation, Carlos intercepted him. And it was an easy interception because Gardy knew him. He had worked at the orphanage. He knew the family. He didn't know the complexities of him being fired and so forth. So Carlos grabs his hand, takes him for a walk into the parking lot, and according to witnesses, put him on a motorcycle that was being driven by some thugs. See, Carlos had made a plan with these thugs, with these traffickers. He said, hey, here's the plan. We're going to kidnap this kid. We're going to take him away. We're going to get ransom for him. Guess we'll get his kid back and I'll get the money, or a piece of the money. Well, everything fell apart for Carlos when they were just using him. Because they got the boy, they got ransomed once, then ransomed twice, refused to call and they, they assumed that Gesno had funds because he had this this big orphanage. It was fairly big and a lot of support from the U.S. that had that was giving support for the orphanage. And so they just they felt like they could get a lot more out of Gesno right. than what Carlos had initially intended. So the first ransom came in, the boy wasn't delivered. Second ransom, boy wasn't delivered. But here's what the thugs, the traffickers were doing. They, they were double-crossing Carlos, and they used his phone to call Gesno to set him up, which worked because the police ended up arresting Carlos and kind of after that closed the case. Hey, Victorious, we got, we got him. We got the bad guy in jail. And then Gesno's saying, but what about my kid? It's like, oh, it's like finding a needle in the haystack. And it was during that time where he's like pleading with the police, talking to private investigators that he can't afford, just weeks after this kidnapping, that on January 10th, 2010, the seven-point earthquake, 7.0 earthquake rocks Haiti. A quarter million people instantly dead. You know, the, 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 the weak infrastructure of, of, of Haiti couldn't handle such an earthquake. Mm. And... Um, Tens of thousands of children were immediately left orphaned. Uh, blood, smoke, and terror everywhere. If you can imagine, you know, there's there, there's pictures of this. I mean, the cat, the the National Palace collapsed. I mean, it was just a mess. Yeah. Um, uh, Gasno told me that the FBI did come down for a few weeks, and they just said, "Look, we we can't even. This this is such a mess. How are we going to find this kid?" Um, while Gesno was out in the street on January 10th talking to a private investigator about how he might help him, he literally watched his office building, which was on the second floor, collapse. So while he's looking for his kid, his office collapsed. In the office was his wife, his mom, uh, his I, I believe his brother and sister, brother-in-law, all dead. Except for his wife, by some miracle, it took him, I think, seven, eight hours to pull her from the rubble. She survived, and she was just like, I'm out. She took the rest of the kids to the United States, and Gessner says, I'm not leaving without my son. But he had no help. You know, in, in, in a place like Haiti, they don't, they don't really do a lot of proactive work. It's, it's all they can do to keep up with the reactive stuff, the dead bodies, well, the homicides, the bank robberies. The earthquake. I mean, that, that affected everybody. And here we have this father with this very personal, very immediate 
horrible problem, but the whole nation now has a horrible problem. There was really, he was really just, it was just, he was on his own. And that's where, how many years later you find out about it? I think about a year or two later is when I first learned this story. And for those, for that year and a half or so, I mean, he was just searching and searching and searching by himself. And so what he told me he did and had been doing was just walking the streets of Port-au-Prince all night. He had to work. You know, he, 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 he ran an orphanage. Um, and so he had to get to work during the day, but didn't sleep at night. Flashlight in hand, he would just walk through the streets of Port-au-Prince, arbitrarily picking some neighborhood. He said, the darker, the better, the more crime-ridden, the better, and just praying to God that he would hear his son cry. So at this point, I'm sitting here, you know, back in the United States at a restaurant talking to him, just crying. And I just, I just made this promise to him. I said, I, 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 I will look for him. I will do everything I can to look for him. And because the boy was a U.S. citizen, Gardy, I thought I could make it a U.S. case. And I was told pretty quickly that, that you can't uh, because it's a Haitian case. And the FBI had already gone and looked and had no success. But he did have a glimmer of hope because he said he, he th- through his investigation, he, um, and s- through some things that Carlos had said to him, he made a connection to this, what looked like an orphanage. And he said, I swear Gardy is here. But he couldn't get in. It's like a compound. You can't just get in there. So he, he, he told me that he like rented a room nearby, got on the roof and was just looking and looking, could never find him. There was a couple, several dozen little kids there. And that's when we entered the scene. Um, and when the U.S. government told me I couldn't do anything about it, I, uh, well, one thing I did is I called um, a guy, a guy who uh, you see in Sound of Freedom, his, he's Vampiro, and he's doing his work in Latin America. And I, I borrowed more money to send him to check this orphanage out, to try to get in there. And he, he had some success. He was able to determine that these kids he th- were being sold. So clearly it was a front and it was a trafficking center. And, and, and it just so happens to be, it's the same orphanage where our kids were. In fact, looking for Gardy is what found is what helped us to find our children. And, uh, according to Gesno and what he believed that orphanage was just basically a holding ground um, until they could either ransom him off again or or sell him. And since after two attempts of ransom without delivering the boy, the trafficker set up Carlos to be the bad guy, so he was arrested and wouldn't talk. Um, our only our only hope was to go in and undercover and act like traffickers to see what we could learn but I couldn't do it unless I left the government. Um, in Sound of Freedom, you know, you see the story of what happened in Colombia. Well, simultaneously, uh, we were going to, 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 to Haiti to try to get inside and, this place. And this case has a tie in Sound of Freedom. It's, there's a piece of Sound of Freedom, probably the most inaccurate piece of the whole movie. <laughs> 
but the that the um the case they're referring to is the search for Gardy. Because we talked about in the previous episode that you go in looking for Gardy and you don't find him. And that was that was devastating. You had to go it, it was so exciting in the sense of liberating these twenty seven, twenty eight kids. But um but you had a hard time feeling really excited about it because you had to go and tell Gesno. Gesno was close by when you yeah. were doing this. Yeah, so when we infiltrated the orphanage, the main goal was to find Gardy. That was that was really it. And the and the, the Haitian police said, Look, go in there if you can find him, then we got him. Um if not, and if they offer you children, because we had done we worked with Haitian uh, police to determine this was not an orphanage. They're, they're not adopting kids. So what are they doing with them? Well, they're probably trafficking them. And when we got in, we did, we found out that's exactly what they were doing. Um, just selling the kids out the back door for like $15,000 to who, to, to slave labor, to possibly organ harvesting. Actually, we got evidence of that, um, of, of organ harvesting rings that we're taking. I mean, you can sell a pediatric heart for a quarter million dollars or of course, sex slavery. So, uh, by the time we got into the orphanage, I couldn't find Gardy, but I was still hopeful he was there. In the meantime, the traffickers were trying to sell me a kid. And we told this story last time. He has a sister. We end up buying both of them and then later adopting both of them. Just to be clear, buying under in an undercover sense, yeah. like so that the police could prosecute. Right, they had to they had to commit enough overt acts to prove the intent was to sell the kids. In fact, fact we, yeah, we have that picture. Yeah, here's here's a picture of that was taken undercover of the actual purchase of the actual purchase of these kids and the traffickers who ended up going to jail. And we told, we told that story later. Now the part I didn't, I didn't include was, well, what about Gardy? What happened to him? Because after that deal was made and they were arrested, I couldn't wait to get back to the orphanage and find out. You found him, right? He was here. He must be there. He must be one of the kids. And so we went in with, with the Child Protective Services, interviewed every kid, talked to every single one, and I was just waiting on pins and needles for the phone call to say, we got him. He was here. So you, you're excited to go find Gardy. Oh, I, I know he's there. You're thinking for sure. For sure. We got the bad guys. Now we can actually get into the stories of each and every one of those 26 other kids. Where, where was Gesno? When you were doing that sting. So I, we decided the guests don't needed to wait in a nearby hotel lobby because we just, it's too emotional. You know, he couldn't be there. So he's in a lobby just praying his guts out. Like, Gardy's got to be there. Gardy's got to be there. Gardy's got to be there. And when I fa- I got a phone call, this is when I was waiting in the police station. They're interviewing um, the traffickers who were arrested. And so I'm going back and forth between that I, I got Colleen and Colleen still with me because they were rescued during the sting operation. You know, we actually brought, we actually, as we talked about last time, we took the two kids and the traffickers to a hotel. that was a hotel room that was 
the picture you just saw. All white. That's why we got such good pictures because we had cameras hidden everywhere. And so now we're just waiting because the Child Protective Services, along with my team, is now in the orphanage. And this is when they took Cole and Colleen. Yeah, and I told that story where I, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the interrogation. I'm on the phone with the teams in the orphanage and trying to comfort these kids. I'm just flooded with emotions. The, the traffickers break. Luckily, they admit, yes, yes, we sold these kids, so that was good. But then I got the phone call. Guardy is not here. We've interviewed the kids multiple times and none of them is Guardy. He must have already been sold. And now I'm just like, oh my gosh. I have to be the one. And I was I was a wimp because I called him. I was going to tell him on the phone. And he went, He didn't pick up. He didn't pick up. He didn't pick up. I'm like, I got to go see him. I got to go see him. So, so I went over to the hotel lobby and I walked into like the little restaurant adjacent to the lobby. And there he was. And I just broke down because my, I had envisioned a thousand times I was going to walk in holding his son. You know, this was supposed to be Garney. Um, I sat down knee to knee and I just couldn't even talk. And he's crying and I'm crying because he knows without saying anything. I did eke out somehow like, well, you know, the 28 kids were rescued. We got them. They're all out. But it seemed really insignificant in that moment. And I remember looking up and his tears were dried and he had this bright smile on his face. And I'm like, what are you, what are you smiling about? He said, you told me you just, you and your team just rescued 28 kids. I said, yeah, but we're, we're here to talk about the one we didn't rescue. And he said, Tim, I don't think you understand what I'm thinking right now. He said, those 28 kids would never have been rescued if my guardian hadn't been kidnapped. Because no one would have come and found them. And it was a really cool operation in a, in a way that I think it's the only time that I we did what we would call a preventative strike. We talked last time about how our two children and the other 26 were not, to our knowledge, sexually assaulted or, or trafficked in that way. They were essentially on the auction block. The only reason, because usually it requires sexual abuse to get the case on the radar but not in this case, only because of Gardy. Because Gardy led us to that orphanage, which allowed us to rescue those kids before they were assaulted. And that's never happened before or since that I can think of. But here I am watching this guy like all giddy about 28 kids being rescued and his kids gone. And he said to me, maybe, maybe one of the most powerful words that any human being has said to me other than when you said yes to, to marrying me. He said, if I have to give up my son so that these 28 kids can be rescued, then that is a sacrifice I'm willing to make. In fact, later he told me, because in his belief is that there was a premortal life, a premortal world where we made promises and covenants with God. He said, Tim, I, I believe that 
We signed up for this. Because 28 kids are going to be rescued if, if I was willing to take on the burden to, to lose my son. And, you know, the, the gospel kind of parallels weren't lost on me. You know, that God gave up his only begotten son so that so many others could be rescued. Um, I was having a hard time believing him because I remember thinking if I were sitting where you were sitting, I wouldn't have that courage to say that I would be fully so I would be fully focused on just the fact that my kid was gone. Gessner took it a step further and he took me to the police station and he, I remember him telling the police and he said, if, if you can't find the parents to any of these kids who were rescued in the name of my son, then I'll take them. I will raise them. They can come to my home, to my orphanage. And I remember he, either that day or the next day, left with eight of those, of those children. Now, he didn't have money to take care of them. He didn't have the means. And we, we ended up finding the funds to take care of them and stayed in touch with them. But he took them in. This, this whole thing was so emotional. And I, and I usually try to, to avoid giving you so many details because of the danger and the darkness of the subject. But I remember calling you and telling you this entire story. Do you remember that? Yeah. And, and how did you feel? It was very emotional. There was a lot of mixed feelings. This operation in the beginning stages of OUR had been so dramatically successful. And these 28 kids and then feeling like this connection with these two and, and should we adopt and feeling all that. But then at the same time, just all the kids had been praying. We had a picture of Guardy up on our fridge. They, they were all praying that Guardy would be there. And, and it was just, it was so disappointing. It was, it was heartbreaking that he wasn't there. And, but that, that, um, that really propelled the work forward because Gardy, the search, the search goes on and that led to how many operations in Haiti? Dozens. And they're still going on. Dozens. And, uh, and I believe I'd have to check the stats. I believe hundreds of kids were <laughs> rescued looking for Guardy because we did have some leads. Yeah. We had certain witnesses. We had a reason to believe he was out on the border in a slave labor situation. Haiti has a unique, horrible thing um, of, it's almost like a hidden form of slavery. They call these children Restavics. And basically it's... It's kind of like a foster system, except they're your slaves. Yeah, it's unofficial. It's not like an official. Right. It's just, hey, I can't afford you, so go move out of the country. And then these slavers take them, and it's all slave labor. And the the little girl, the girls are, are generally sent over to the Dominican Republic into the sex tourism, and the boys um, are just forced to work slave labor. And this is where the scene from Sound of Freedom, um, pretty much the only part of the movie that I can just watch and not feel like emotionally pulled by it because it's where 
it really kind of goes off script to yeah. like the first three fourths of the movie. I, I have a hard time watching because it, it's it, so real. It's so real. It's all, you know, there's, they've changed things, but I can relate to so many things. The last part of the movie is, um, is referring to a real thing that you did in an effort to find Guardy. One of the, one of the things that you, one of the tactics that you took searching for him in the, in the, the border region between border region. Haiti and Dominican, it's all the slave labor's happening. And, and there's and very the little girl, law enforcement out there. There's little, it's, it really is. In fact, when you watch Sound of Freedom, it looks a lot like that. And the girl, what's her name in the movie? Rocio. Rocio. She, in that part, she's actually representing Gardy. She's representing yeah. the search for Gardy. And she's a real girl. And we've told that story. Right. She's associated her, with we, the brother. Right. But that's a real story. But it actually, we've talked about this. It actually, they were actually trafficked and abused in the United States. But right. we, we decided to not focus on that so as to protect their identities. And now didn't, I feel like, am I remembering this right? Didn't they toy with the idea of not having her rescued? Yeah. In, because the idea is Guardi is not found. And, and he is, he is the, the representation of the ongoing search for these lost children. We're never, we, we can't get to all of them. So this search of, of this continual looking for Guardi represents this continual looking yeah. for these children. And the movie makers toyed with the idea of ending the movie with her not being found. And then they thought, because Gardy hasn't been found. And she, in that scene, she's representing Gardy. Yeah. And you do go in. Well, we'll tell that. But um, she, they just decided that's way too heavy. We can't end the movie after all that you've seen. And I know I appreciate this because it's already hard enough to watch. If, can you imagine watching the movie? And she's not found, which is, which is more accurate in the sense of all these children that are still unfound. Yeah. So, so instead they reverted back to the little girl who was rescued and decided to create a new script to tell the story of the actual Guardy, which spoil alert, like, Yeah. He's not going to be found, but it's still an inspiring script. And I hope to see it on the big screen in a few years. Tell about what their, what, what tactic you were using that they used in that. So the sound of freedom picked up that tactic where we did in fact go into this very dangerous um, region, probably the most dangerous border maybe in the world because of all the. Yeah. There are certain places where Tim, when he goes, you know, when, when he's in Colombia, like it's very dangerous. It's always very dangerous, but there are certain places that he's gone that it's just like, okay, I'm going to use all my powers of compartmentalization and faith and prayer to not stress about the dangers of where you are. And, And one of them is Haiti. Haiti is, I have a great love for Haiti and we're doing a lot of great work there, but it's it's a dangerous place, and when you've been to the Middle East and certain things, Ukraine, there, you know, there. So the danger was real, but unlike the film, you never go in alone. No. So you're going in with a team of of doctors or a couple doctors. We have we have, we have 
one doctor, we have one nurse. We're all posing as doctors. Look, I, I wouldn't have gone alone and tried to trick all these people into thinking I could actually provide medical services. <laughs> so these were liberties taken by the filmmakers. But we've always been very upfront, even before the movie came out, that, like I say, 80% of the movie is 80% accurate. The first 80% of the movie is 80% accurate. The last 15% of the movie, the most exciting part, probably is about 15%, maybe 20%. Accurate. So What's I'm, the other five percent? Well, I'm not very good at math, <laughs> but you get the idea. Um, I definitely. He's not, he's not very good at math. I definitely am not as cool as they make me look in the film, and and I suffer. You know, I actually had a lot of imposter syndrome as I watched the film because I was like, "Geez, you guys are really taking liberties here." But that place does exist. And, you know, initially the first script had us go from Colombia to that border region. But I said, don't, don't do that because we're still there. We've been there. And whether or not Gardy is there, we have found a lot of slave labor um, in that region. Um, and there's a picture of me and, and, and Gesno in that region that we should find where it actually gave him hope because he, he still believes, you know, whether or not we find Gardy, Gardy is always there. Like the North star, like pointing the way. In fact, Jeremy Hooley has another statue. We'll, we'll find it and put it up as a picture where it shows Gardy. And he's, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's summoning, he's telling people go this way, go this way. Cause that's what he ends up being a true hero because looking for him has led to the rescue of, I don't know how many dozens. In fact, I could, we could even say that he's looking for him has spurned on the whole OUR movement. The whole, um, it's in that effort of recognizing we haven't found the child yet. We haven't found that missing one yet. And that has led to, over 7,000 rescues. That's right. I would tell, I would tell Gaston, you're not just the godfather of those 28 kids, including mine, but you're the godfather of 7,000. Cause I, I'm not sure that we would have taken the risk to leave the government. If I hadn't had so much passion, if we hadn't had so much passion to, to give our all to find that little boy and make good on the promise, which we're still working on. And, like we've talked before, um, to me, this is just, it's just evidence of how much God cares about all of his children that he sends, he sends us on these little quests and we think we're doing one thing, but it, it's really going somewhere else. And he's, he just, he cares and he sends you to he sends you and your team and others that are in this work to the most remote and places where no one is coming. No one is coming except that God sent you there and sent others. There's so many great people in this work and, and these children are voiceless. They have no voice, but, but that God hears them and he's, He's sending people to rescue and we just need to find out 
what more he is asking us to do. Like in this moment, what is he asking us to do to go find those voiceless children and women and, and all the people that are suffering? There's so much suffering and we need to be listening so that we can be that, we can be that tool to find the voiceless. And there's so many ways to, to, to do it. You know, you can donate to those who are out doing the work right now. In fact, I sit on the board of aerial recovery and they're, they're in the middle of an operation right now. OUR continues to do operations, uh, covenant rescue. There's so many that we are trying to support who have the will and the guts and the wherewithal to go in. You've got to go in to the dark places. You can't just sit back and write white papers and, and wave a flag of hope. You've got to intervene. You've got to go in, which is what we have um, strived to do and continue to do. And so we ask you for your help. We ask you to, 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 to donate to any of these causes. So help us, help these children. Um, if nothing else, pray for them. As we talked about in a previous episode, adopt some of these kids if you if you can. There's so much we can do to 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 help these children who are in 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 such need. And um, you know, I'm in regular contact with Gesno. He's still on the ground. He's still tracking leads, and we're doing what we can to support him. And so we ask you to support us, supporting him, um, and 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 just pick any organization so that we can continue this fight, that we can expect miracles like we've seen and continue to rescue God's children. And so with that, we'll close out this episode. I know this story sounds sad, but it's also so full of hope because it shows that there is a way out. And I'm grateful that we adopted those two kids because every day I see them, I'm reminded of this story. And I'm reminded that there is hope to get these kids out. And every single one of them. But the hope, the hope lies in us. Well, ultimately the hope is in Christ. He's going to make this all right. And that, that promise, everything hangs on that promise. He will make everything right. But he is using us. He's using us. You, I'm saying us like this whole, anyone that is listening anywhere, we, he's waiting for us to be willing to act and, and let's, let's, let's act. Let's see what we can do. What can we do today? What can you do? What can I do? What can we do today to do something to bless the lives of those around us? And with those words of encouragement and invitation, we will end this episode. Thank you for tuning in. And we're excited to see you next time on the Tim Ballard Podcast. Mm-hmm.